Good morning. There is a big difference between talking about grace and experiencing grace. And I will tell you that it is way easier to talk about what I'm going to talk about today than it is to practice it. And I stand up here today with a little bit of trepidation because I feel like I'm somebody who has stumbled more than I've succeeded in this area. As I was working on this message, uh, a memory came into mind, and it's, a, it's an intense memory. It's a, a powerful memory. Uh, right before all of us started carrying around hand sanitizer and masks, um, can you imagine what you would have been like if you just came back in a time machine, you know, from another time? And, and you were in our world today. But before we thought of all that, um, at the beginning of 2020, uh, I sat down one day um, in a counselor's office. I'm a big believer that you shouldn't wait until things fall apart to get help. I don't think going to counseling is a sign that you are crazy, messed up, or broken. I think it's just a sign that you want to be healthy. And so in 2017, I started seeing a counselor, um, and it had a profound impact on me. And a few late years later, my wife and I started sitting down with a counselor. And it was in that office in the beginning of January of 2020 that we had a session that I will never forget. We'd been meeting with them for a few sessions, but something about this day felt different. And when I sat down, she opened up a notebook. And my wife is not somebody who typically journals a whole lot. So I was like, oh, no, this is going to be scary. And she began to kind of uh, set me up for what she was going to share. Uh, our counselors call it pre-tagging, which is really important. But the longer and longer the pre-tag went, the more scared and scared I got because I said, man, why do I need this long of an introduction? Uh, what am I going to hear? And without going into uh, what is appropriate for a counseling room and what is not appropriate for a sermon, I try to always make sure that I stay on the right side of that line. That day, she shared with me some things that were really hard to hear. I had blind spots. I had said things and done things that I didn't remember or at least didn't recognize were impactful. And the person who matters to me more than anybody else on earth, when they're sitting across from you sharing about how you have hurt them, that's one of the hardest things you can ever hear. That's a hard thing to take in. And I can remember sitting in that office beginning to feel the, the beginning waves of things that some of you guys know really well. Guilt, shame, regret, remorse. And I, uh, I just finished the journal that I started that day. And I was reading back through what I wrote in that in those first few days after that. And I can remember a conversation my wife and I had when I was really struggling with what she shared with me. And she said, hey, I know this is fresh for you. I know I just shared this stuff with you. She said, but I've been processing it for a while. And I'm at a place where I can say genuinely, I forgive you. I give you grace. And I can remember that I didn't say these exact words, but something like this came out of my mouth. I said, I know that you've offered me grace but I'm struggling to embrace it myself. And I think a lot of us in this room and a lot of you watching online can probably relate to a statement like that. That you don't do well 
giving yourself grace. You don't do well embracing the grace that other people have given you. And maybe you don't do well with actually experiencing and embracing the grace of God. Yeah, you sing about it. Yeah, you know about it intellectually. But when it comes to practically doing that, it makes you really uncomfortable and it's difficult for you. We're in a series this month called Grace in Real Life. Last week, our friend Tim Kimmel kicked it off by talking about grace-based families. And Tim and I were talking backstage before that day, and he was asking me where we were going to go in the rest of the series. And I've been out of town this past week, and so I had written this message in advance. It was already done, and I was walking him through it. And he made a statement early on in his message that he didn't have a time to expound on last week. I'm going to kind of piggyback off on something he said today. But he said that many of us understand grace when it comes to our salvation. Key to our faith is the idea that God has given us grace and he has forgiven everything in our past. And we we understand that. That's something we talk about on a regular basis. But many of us do not experience grace as the ongoing reality in our lives. We go, yeah, grace, I got that for my past, for salvation. God and I are good. But we don't live with grace being the air that we breathe. If we're like a fish, the water that we swim in, the daily reality that we work through. And because of that, I think that's why we struggle to both give and receive grace on a daily basis. We live in a very ungracious time. We live in an era in which generally in culture, we don't give a whole lot of grace. Many of us don't receive a whole lot of grace and we don't see grace modeled. What do we see modeled? Canceling somebody. Writing somebody off. Condemning somebody for their worst moment. And I think what sets apart the the truth of Christianity is this idea of grace. And I want to make sure that we're on the same page when it comes to grace. Here's a definition of grace that I think is so far the best one that I found. Grace is unconditional love given to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. I modified that slightly from a definition in Preston Sprinkle's book on grace, but grace is unconditional love. If you have to satisfy some sort of conditions, it's, it's not grace. Two, it's given to an undeserving person. If somebody has to deserve it or do something to earn it, it is good, but it's not grace anymore. And grace is always given by an unobligated giver. If somebody is making you give grace, it's no longer grace. And as a parent, I struggle with this sometimes because I'm like, you know, you need to apologize. I can make a, a child say, I'm sorry. I can't make them mean it. And I can look at another child and say, hey, you should probably forgive them, but I can't make them give grace because grace comes from an unobligated giver. This is why grace is so special. This is why grace is so transformational because it's unconditional love, which is so rare. It comes to an undeserving person. There's no reason to give it. It's undeserving. And it comes from an unobligated giver who gives it not because they have been compelled from the outside, but because they have been moved on the inside. So today, what I want to talk to you about is grace for yourself. 
And here's the big idea. When grace shifts from a concept about God to an experience with God, grace becomes real. And I think for a lot of you, grace has not become real for you in your daily and ongoing life, in your relationships, and in the deepest parts of your soul, because it is still a mental or doctrinal concept in your head about God. And it doesn't become an experience that you're having with God. And I will tell you that that move from this line to this line It will change your life. It will change your relationships. It will change the way you see yourself. But it is not easy, and many of us hang out in the gap between concept and experience. If you're sitting in the room today and and you were listening to the story that I shared as I opened, and you could all relate to that. You've ever felt shame or guilt because of something you've done. You've ever struggled to receive the grace that God has given you. You've struggled to forgive yourself. This is a message today that I don't want to oversell it, but I believe it could transform or unlock some things within you. Because I believe that God is offering you grace today. He's an unobligated giver. No one can make God do anything. And all of us are undeserving persons. And the thing that God offers us is unconditional love. Not conditional acceptance, not conditional approval, but unconditional love. The problem is a lot of us respond to grace in different ways. And I think there's four ways that we respond to grace as people. The first way that a lot of us respond to grace is we exclude. We exclude ourselves from grace. We say, hey, that's great for them, but not for me. Grace is for you, but it's not for me. And a classic example of someone who excluded themselves from God's grace is Judas. Judas is maybe the most infamous person in all the Bible. Most people, even if they don't even know the disciples of Jesus or Moses or Elijah, they know Judas. He's the most famous betrayer. Uh, lots of Jesus' disciples get, get notoriety in the centuries to come because we name our kids after them. I mean, Matthew, Peter, James, John. Did you have any Judases in first grade in your class? I hope not. I'm not sure what that parent was thinking. I know there's some weird kids' names coming out these days. I just never see Judas on that list. And there's a reason why. Judas thought that Jesus was going to be a different kind of Savior. If you've ever been frustrated that God wasn't doing what you wanted him to do, you have company with Judas. And Judas thought that maybe if he sold Jesus out, he might be able to force Jesus' hand to be the kind of Savior he wanted him to be. And then Jesus allowed himself to be arrested, unjustly tried, convicted, and then sentenced to crucifixion. And around that time, Judas began to realize that his plot wasn't going the way that he wanted. And he started to feel intense remorse. And so in Matthew 27, we read, Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that Jesus had been condemned, was full of remorse. And he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders who paid him off 
to betray Jesus. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, Judas said. What's that to us, they said. See to it yourself. So Judas threw the silver into the temple and departed. And then he went and he hanged himself. Judas's exclusion of himself from God's grace was so great that he couldn't even continue living. Now, I will tell you that I think Judas's story could have ended very differently. Because Peter's story did. Peter betrayed Jesus. Actually, all of his disciples did. All of them abandoned him. Peter looked across the room at Jesus and then cursed out loud, denying he ever knew him. That's pretty big relational break. And yet, Jesus, after his resurrection, restores Peter. I think Judas would have experienced the same grace, but Judas excluded himself from that. He didn't give Jesus a chance to give him grace. And there's some of you here today that you say, Scott, this grace talk is great, but not for me. What I've done is too great. What I've done is so bad. How I feel is too heavy. There's no way grace could be for me. And we exclude ourselves from God's grace when we think our ability to sin is greater than his ability to forgive. That's where exclusion comes from. When we think that our ability to sin or the sin that we've done in the past is greater than God's ability to forgive us, we find ourselves in that category of excluding. And I will tell you that that's the power of shame in our lives. That's the work that our enemy Satan wants to do. He wants to bury us so deep in shame and guilt and regret and remorse that we feel like there's no way that God's grace could reach us. Therefore, grace may be a real concept, but it's never going to be our experience because what we did is so bad and so great. And I was not in a place after that counseling session where I was in suicidal ideation like Judas was, but I was struggling with giving myself grace and I was excluding myself from God's grace. The second response or reaction some of us have to grace is earn. When we hear about God's grace, we shift into earning mode and we begin to try to earn God's grace. And a classic example of this is the parable that we commonly in Scripture call the parable of the prodigal son. Now, I'll remind you, if you're new to the Bible or new to Scripture, that in your Bible, there are a number of things that were not there in the original writing. These little dark numbers that are chapter numbers, these little small numbers that are verse numbers, and these bolded headings are all added by editors later to help us navigate a book that includes 66 long chapters, different books, and many different topics. And so those headings were not there originally. So somewhere along the way, somebody said, what's a good title for this story that Jesus tells? And so somebody said, well, let's call it the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the lost son. And since that's not inspired, I will just say I think they got it wrong. I think a better title is not the parable of the prodigal son, but the parable of the loving father. 
Because I think this story's main character is not the son who runs away, blows all of his money on wild living, and comes home brokenhearted and repentant. I think the, the center character in the story is the father. The father's the hero. The father's the one that the story's all about. Yet there's an older brother. And I've got some older brother in me. I think a lot of you do too. The older brother was the one who was the dutiful brother. He was the one who worked hard, did everything right, always wanted to have his parents' approval, kept his head down, didn't ever ask for anything. And when his younger brother comes home, his younger brother gets filet mignon. His younger brother gets a party. His younger brother gets gets everything that he never asked for and he certainly doesn't deserve. And the older brother is perturbed. We pick up his story in Luke 15. But he replied to his father. Oh, I missed some. There's some scriptures missing here. Beginning in verse 25, it says, Now his older son was in the field. We'll catch up here in a second. And as he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what thing these things meant. And the servant said, your brother is here and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf. That's the filet mignon. And he has him back safe and sound. Then the older brother became angry and did not want to go in to the party. So the father came out and he pleaded with him. This is where we pick the story up here. And he replies to his father, look, I have been slaving many years for you. And I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. Now, I know none of you have asked your father for a goat lately. But again, different culture, different time, different place. Goat was a very small ass compared to the fattened calf. And he's like, I haven't even asked for a goat. But when this son of yours, so it's, it's not his brother anymore. It's his dad's son. When he came who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughter the fattened calf for him. Son, the father said to him, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found. And if you're somebody who responds to grace with a posture of the older brother trying to earn it, these kinds of moments infuriate you. You, like the older brother, get mad at God for, as Jake sang earlier, being so good. You get mad at God for being so gracious. You get mad at God for forgiving people because you've been here slaving away. You didn't have a wild season. You didn't have prodigal years. You earned it. You were always at church. You always read ahead. You always came in prepared. You never missed a Sunday. You tithed. Not on the net, but on the gross. You always did the right things. At least you thought so. You've been trying to earn God's grace. But here's the problem. 
It's foolish to try to earn something when it's already available as a free gift. It's foolish when you try to go out and work hard and earn something that you already have for free. Have you ever bought something and then somebody you know got it at a cheaper price? You know how angry that makes me? My inner cheapskate just gets so fired up. And that's how some of you feel with God. Because you're trying to earn something that cannot be earned. And you are trying to slave away for something that no amount of work could ever produce. The third response to grace that some of us take is that we excuse. We excuse. We excuse ourselves from grace. We say, hey, Scott, all this stuff about sin and brokenness, man, I think you're overstating it. I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I, I don't need that much grace. I don't need grace at all. And a classic example of this is a group called the Pharisees. They were the classic foil in the story of Jesus again and again and again. Religious leaders who had mastered the Old Testament law, who prided themselves because they always did the right thing. And there's a powerful moment that happens in Luke chapter 18. There says that Jesus also told this parable. Again, Jesus was always telling these stories to break through to people and help them to understand And he told this to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Here's the story. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now I'll tell you, a lot of us work on our taxes right now. We're not happy with Uncle Sam. But as frustrated as you get with the IRS, a tax collector was a way bigger thing. They were cooperating with the Romans. They were working with the oppressors. They were helping the Romans excise huge taxes off the Hebrews, and then they were taking some for themselves. Whoever is the least popular person in our society, go a couple notches higher and you have tax collectors. And it says the Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of everything I get. Now, I'm not sure where this guy learned how to pray, (laughs) but I would say this is more of a self-promotion than it is a prayer. Less about God and more about himself. Then Jesus' story pivots. It says, but the tax collector who was standing far off, who probably didn't even hear the Pharisee's words, he wouldn't even raise his eyes to heaven, but he kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus concludes by saying, I tell you, this one who beat his chest, went down to his house justified rather than the other because everyone who exalts himself 
will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I make fun of the prayer of the Pharisee. But I used to live like that. I used to live like I was better than other people because I didn't sin in the way they did. And the temptation for all of us is to look down on people who struggle with things that we don't. And what I've learned is that we excuse our sin when we look down on someone else for their sin. See, the only way for that Pharisee to get above the tax collector is to think that he's better than him because he doesn't sin in the way he does. And judgmentalism requires a level of, of height above others to look down on them and judge them. And it begins with excusing our own sin. When we recognize that our sin is just as great as anybody else's and our need for grace is just as great as anybody else's, we don't have space to look down on anybody else's because we're not excusing our sin. We're not judging their sin. We're just grateful for the grace that God's given us. And some of you, you've never experienced grace because you've never acknowledged your own sin long enough to recognize your need for grace. And it's like roads that are going in two opposite directions. You can either walk the road of excusing your sin, or you can walk the road of admitting your need for grace. Well, the fourth and final response also starts with an E, as you might be able to guess, and it's the word embrace. Embrace. You can exclude yourself from God's grace. You can try to earn God's grace. You can uh, excuse your need for grace or you can embrace it. And one of my favorite examples of embracing God's grace in Scripture is a man named Paul. We meet Paul and he is, uh, he's a very scary man. He's somebody that if I met, I would be terrified of. We meet Paul in the book of Acts, and he's standing over a group of uh, cloaks and tunics, what we would call jackets and coats, because those who have dropped them there by Paul have grabbed rocks, and they are preparing to stone Stephen. No, they are not going to get high together. They are going to take rocks and keep throwing them at Stephen until he's dead, because Stephen has blasphemed God. And this is the introduction to Paul's work persecuting followers of Jesus. He spent his time going from town to town, arresting, chasing down, and capturing leaders in the church of Jesus. And over a number of years and at least months, Paul terrorized the church. I know we think of a terrorist as somebody of a certain nationality, somebody of a certain faith, but the outcome is the same. Paul terrorized the church. People were afraid. People walked around looking over their shoulder because of Paul's threats. And Paul in Acts chapter 9 has a radical encounter with Jesus that transforms his life. And what I love about Paul is later on, he doesn't rewrite his own history. That's a great temptation of all of us. 
to either make our past better or worse than it was. But what Paul does is he tells the absolute truth about his past. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, For I am the least of the apostles. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul doesn't excuse his sin. He faces it. He admits it even years later. And he recognizes his need for grace because he has not forgotten where he was when God encountered him. But then this is what Paul says, and this is one of my my favorite verses in all the Bible. Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. Paul says, yeah, the the grace of God, it covers what I did in the past when I terrorized the church, but I stand here today before you and I am what I am. Not because of my own efforts, not because of my own achievements, not because of my own intellect, but only and solely by the grace of God. And by the way, that grace that God gave me, it was not in vain. It wasn't wasted. By the grace of God, I am. Is on the contrary, it wasn't wasted. He goes, I worked harder than any of them, any of the other apostles. He says, yet not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Even the work that Paul is doing in the future is solely explained by the grace of God. He attributes his past forgiveness, his present identity, and his future work all to the grace of God. Of God, And he concludes by saying, whether then it is I or they, the Apostle Paul or any of the other apostles, this is what we proclaim, and so you have believed. Paul says, when you drill it all down, the message that we preach you is a message of grace. Unconditional love given to an undeserving person coming from an unobligated giver. Two years ago, I had to face the fact that I thought I knew better than God, and certainly I knew better than my wife, whether or not I deserved grace. I had to realize that when I refused to embrace grace, I was saying to my wife and to God, I know better than you. It was God who I'd sinned against. It was my wife that I had hurt. And I had to realize that if they chose to give me grace, they knew better than me. And I had an opportunity to receive grace that day. So if you're somebody who struggles with grace for yourself, and when you're faced with the grace of God and your struggle to embrace that grace, I think you have some choices. Will I trust God's omniscient view of reality, or will I trust my own limited view? I tell this to my kids on a regular basis. You don't know everything. Say that to you today. You don't know everything, but God does. 
And when you say to God that you are not worthy of his grace, what you're saying is that you trust your own limited view of reality more than his all-knowing view. See, it sobered me up when I realized I was saying to God, I know better than you. But when you refuse to embrace the grace he's extending to you, that's what you're saying. Will I trust God's eternal truth or my temporary feelings? Now, notice what word I didn't put there. I said temporary. I didn't say not real. The church has done a really poor job over the last few decades with talking about emotions and feelings. And what many people have said is that your feelings are not real or not true, and that's false. The feelings you have, they came from the imagination of God. The reason you have them is that God dreamed them up. They're real. But friends, they're temporary. They change. And we should not put our trust in things that change so quickly. I want you to imagine you're driving in a car. You're going on a road trip. And somebody yells, shotgun! That means they want to sit in that seat next to the driver. Well, friends, you have to decide, are your feelings going to drive your car or are they going to ride shotgun? Is God's eternal truth going to drive the car or are your feelings? And I would say your feelings can go anywhere you want. But I'd encourage you to make sure that your feelings always sit shotgun. Finally, Will I trust God's grace or my own inner judge or lawyer? Some of us have an inner judge that condemns us all the time with guilt and shame and remorse. Some of us have an inner lawyer, and your lawyer is really good. He gets you off every single time. He justifies you. He excuses you. Well, are you going to trust either one of those voices, or are you going to trust the voice of God's grace? His unconditional love that was given to you, an undeserving person, from him, an unobligated giver. And friends, let me just tell you, when grace shifts in your life from a concept about God to an experience with God, grace becomes real. Now, because I think that I'm not alone with struggling to embrace God's grace, I want to give you some next steps today. And these are on the back of your handout. The first one is this. Accept that you cannot change the past. As somebody who struggles to receive and embrace God's grace, I will tell you that one of the reasons I've discovered as I've been trying to figure out my own struggle is that I didn't want to accept God's grace because it meant that I couldn't change the past. And I was holding out on the idea that if I didn't embrace grace, that it meant somehow I could go back and change what happened. Friends, none of us are that powerful. What you said that you wish you could unsay, what you did that you wish you could undo, what you didn't do that you wish you could go back and have a mulligan on again, what you wish you would have spoken up and said, none of those things can be changed. I want to encourage you. I'm going to put some words on the screen and I want you to read them. I'm not going to put them on there yet until you're ready to say them because I want you to say them before you think about it, okay? So just trust me. I'm not going to tell you to blaspheme God or announce that your team you want to win later today is going to win. None of those things. We're just going to read these words as soon as they come on the screen together, even before we think about them, okay? Ready? 
Go. I am unable to change the past, but God is able to redeem it. Some of you, that's, that's worth you coming today. I am unable to change the past, but God is able to redeem it. That doesn't mean that God's going to go with a magic eraser and take it all away. No, redeeming it is not totally removing it, but it's transforming it, bringing good from it. And I'd encourage you, until you accept that you can't change the past, you will never watch God redeem it. You'll never experience God's grace in that place. So number number one, accept you can't change the past. Number two, confess your need for grace. Some of us refuse to receive God's grace because we don't think we need it. And you will never experience God's grace until you come to the place where you actually recognize your need for it. Number three, repent of your sin. Now, I know repent's a word that a lot of people aren't using today. I think it's still a very worthwhile word. It's a visual word. It includes four parts. It's acknowledging that you're going in the wrong direction, whether that's a pattern or a choice. It's saying, I'm no longer going to go in that direction. I'm going to turn and I'm going to go in a new and right direction and then moving in that direction. You have not repented of something while you're still doing it. If you go, man, I'm really sorry I did that, but I'm not going to stop doing it. You haven't repented. Man, I feel really bad for what I did, but I'm still doing it. That's regret. That's not repentance. It isn't just a bad feeling in your heart. It is a complete change of orientation. And if there's something that you are feeling shame and guilt over, it isn't enough that you feel bad about doing it. It is that God wants to lead you through a process of transforming the orientation of your life to go in a new direction. And then finally, number four, cling to God's grace. Some of you already know how to do this because you've been clinging to your shame. Some of you already know how to do this because you've been clinging to a memory and reliving it 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 and reliving it. And as tightly as you've been clinging to what you've done that you wish that you could undo or said that you wish you could unsaid, as tightly as you've been clinging to guilt and shame and regret, cling to God's grace instead. Because that's where the freedom is. And as you cling to his grace, his grace moves from a concept to an experience. Now next week, we're going to talk about how do we give grace to others. And the reason we're talking about that next week is I had to help you understand what it looks like to experience grace for yourself. Some of you are very ungracious people. But some of the reason for that is that you don't actually give grace to yourself. And you treat other people the way you treat yourself. And until you recognize and receive God's grace, you don't have anything to give. Because you can't give what you don't possess. And so I'd encourage you this week to spend time reflecting on your own need for grace and 
lean into God and his grace that you might have something to give those around you who are just as in need of grace as you are. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We don't earn it. We certainly don't deserve it. It feels so overwhelming at times. Some of us are so caught up in what we've done and the shame that we feel that we don't feel like we can get to your grace. But I thank you that you don't make us get to you to get grace. You came to us to give us your grace. I pray that today you might wreck someone with your grace. You might surprise them, catch them off guard with a real and tangible experience of your unconditional love. I pray that you might restore a marriage through your grace. Pray that you might bring siblings back together. Pray that friends might exchange a phone call. Pray that shame would have its chains broken and that guilt would be forgiven. I pray that you turn a person from obsessing over their past to being hopeful about a future. I thank you for what grace has done in me. And I thank you for your grace. It's by your grace that we are what we are. And I thank you that your grace towards us has never been in vain. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.